everything I do is constantly pointing back to the person. And to try to take away the pain and the confusion is to take away the lesson, right? It's like, if you've made sure that your kid was never frustrated, you're pretty much making sure that your kid is not going to be able to be as completely empowered as if they learn how to wrestle with their own pain and frustration and learn the lessons from it. In today's episode, I talked to Joe Hudson. He runs one of my favorite podcasts called The Art of Accomplishment. When I was chatting with Joe in this episode, I talked about my anxiety of boredom, my life's of should, and these crazy critical voices in my head. I don't know if you have them as well. I hope you don't. And Joe is a really amazing person to talk to him about, and he has a great laugh. As well with Joe, I've taken his connection course with my brother. It was challenging and amazingly transformative. Definitely check out Joe's podcast and his connection course at artofaccomplishment.com. If you've ever wanted to learn about how to be less critical of yourself, which I think we all can do more of, so you can live a more fulfilling life, then you are going to love this episode. I'm so proud of this episode. I hope everyone of you listens to it and has an amazing experience. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how to treat yourself with more respect, R-E-S-B-E-C-T. Two, why Joe would rather make 500 mistakes than be stagnant. Three, the benefits of building a company that operates on an advice culture. I've literally been doing that since I chatted with him recently. Enjoyed those three things, plus so many more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the episode, go check out appsumo.com slash Noah. We have got the best daily deals on software. So if you're looking to start or grow an online business or save a bunch of money on your online software subscriptions, go to appsumo.com slash Noah, join the newsletter for free and get amazing deals. It's kind of like a Groupon for geeks or a Groupon for software. If you've ever been interested in software or creating cool things online, appsumo.com. Also a special pre-show shout out to listeners, Sam Financial Samurai. I love Sam. Excellent podcast, a must subscribe. Noah has endless energy and enthusiasm. Go, Sam, go, which is very contagious. I said that part. He is the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. It was really fun to speak to Noah and I highly recommend subscribing to his podcast. I love you, Sam. And I love every other one of you gorgeous listeners. I truly love you when I get to meet with you, interact with you, and especially when you take some action to make your own life kick more ass. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. I was telling Joe that you do this thing in your shows where you you ask a really hard question. You're like, so how does that make you feel when your dad left you? <laughs> totally. You're like, oh, I know it was hard. That's the, that's the good stuff. <laughs> exactly. I love the show. You, you actually look a lot different than I imagined when I first saw you. I was like, I thought he was going to be so skinny looking and like frail. <laughs> but you have like a real full look. I don't know if that's a great compliment, but you, you look better in person than I expected. Okay. Uh, but I took your connections course and I love your podcast. Awesome. Uh, I did the connections course with my brother. Oh, wow. It was definitely hard. I thought it was supposed to be easy and it wasn't because I was like hating him for a while and I still hate him. Oh, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but it was just a great chance for us to, uh, you know, just chat openly and safely and, and give us ways of doing it. And like your thing about how and what questions, I literally use that almost all the time now. I almost never do anything besides a how and what question. Oh, that's great. So thank you. Yeah, it's amazing how effective that is. We think that our opinions and our advice matter, but it seems as though our questions are more important for people. Yeah. It's so easy to judge and then want to give advice. I was boxing last week and this guy was like, can I give you feedback? And I was like, thank you for asking, right? Before we just start giving someone, yeah, telling them what to do. Yeah. I think the one question I, that I'm wondering a lot, I'm struggling with like relationships. I struggle with like anxiety around being bored. I was trying to think about what it all really summarized. And it's like, how do we all and me specifically find more peace in our lives? I know what you're thinking. I'm like, well, how is peace important to you? And then you do your laugh. 
<laughs> That's actually not what I was thinking. What I was curious is the anxiety around boredom. What is that exactly? Oh, oh my God, dude. And it sounds so strange, maybe to some, but like yesterday, I did my work in the morning and then I went to a coffee shop and read. I'm in Barcelona and it's quiet in the mornings. And I had like probably like three, four hours and I just don't know what to do with myself. It creates a lot of, okay, well, you should just sit and get used to sitting. And then it's like, oh no, well, I should, that's okay. Or no, it's okay to go for a walk. And it, it, I struggle with it. How do you know it's the boredom that's creating the anxiety, not the negative self-talk? The negative self-talk is definitely very loud. What I'm hearing you say is that when you get bored, you're paying attention to the negative self-talk and that creates the anxiety or you're aware of the anxiety when you're bored that's always there. I'm trying to think of how I feel in the moment. I'm sitting and I'm like, well, I have nothing to do. That feels strange. And then I guess, yeah, I do feel bad about it versus like today it's like, okay, you had boxing and then you did this thing and then you did this thing and then I talked to Joe and then you have this thing afterwards and there's not really a moment to pause. So I don't really have to be. So what's creating the anxiety? Is it the boredom? Is it the editing of your experience? Is it the, what would happen to your anxiety if you were sitting there doing nothing? You're like, this is the best thing. This is the most productive thing I could possibly do. I'm kicking ass right now. How anxious would you be? I would be so excited. <laughs> oh my God. That feels like relieving to even think of that being a possibility. Show me the evidence that sitting still is unproductive. I guess it doesn't feel stimulating. It's the feeling I should be doing something else yeah. than just sitting on my couch, which I tried to do it for a little bit. So think about anything that you've been trying to change about yourself for a decade and find one of them that doesn't have a should in it. Yeah. There's something in us that we think that the should is an effective management tool for ourselves, but what it actually does is it creates shame and stagnation. Imagine if you had a boss who was like sitting next to you, he was like, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. Your, your reaction would be, <laughs> fuck you, <laughs> and you wouldn't be doing it. But somehow we think if we manage ourselves that way, it's going to work. I'm trying different scheduling. So in Austin, I'm like packed. This is going to sound strange. I hate weekends. Yeah. It's so open. I'm in Barcelona for the summer, and so I intentionally didn't create anything in the mornings. My mornings are pretty much wide open, and yeah. I'm trying to practice. I wonder how I can experience it with more positivity, maybe positivity, but also just enjoyment. How do you give yourself an answer that doesn't become a should? <laughs> so anything, that, this is the trap, right? Anything I say can then become a should and then it'll be completely unenjoyable and then it'll be create stagnation. And Like I should be sitting on the couch and just enjoy sitting on the couch. As an example. On one level, you're telling yourself you shouldn't be still, that you should be getting things done. On another level, you're telling yourself I should enjoy being still and that you've even set up a situation in Barcelona where you can practice it, like that's a should. So either way, you're screwed. You're like, like you've set up a situation where you're, like, like your boss is pretty sadistic, frankly. Dude, this guy, you know, my 360 review, he's going to get a bad performance review. Exactly. Real asshole. I would even say that there's two aspects to it. The first aspect is that you've got this negative voice in the head that's commenting on everything you're doing and it's a no-win situation. But the other one is that the way you're reacting to it is pretty, like it's that you're reacting to it the same way. You're not exploring all the different ways you could react to it. The voice in your head says, you should be doing this. What's your response? Negative self-talk and self-criticism. Like, why can't you be at peace in this moment? Okay, right. You respond to the critical voice in your head with criticism. So what would be other ways you could respond to it? With compassion? What I notice is your mind is immediately thinking, what's the most effective way? Fuck that for a second. And just go like complete brainstorm. What are like 10 ways you could 
react and don't worry about yeah compassion so compassion's one relaxation like dude you gotta just chill you don't have to do anything so the voice is like you should be doing something and your response is like oh my response would be one response is rebellion like hey i don't have to be productive i don't have to measure my life in productivity okay cool one is gratitude that i can just do nothing yeah like i'm like dude i get to just sit here and like do whatever i want appreciation like i can literally just think about whatever i want you could make fun of it you could be like you shouldn't be (laughs) you could be like hey stop don't talk to me like that like fuck you you could be fuck you or you could be compassionate with your fuck you it's like hey clearly you've been doing this for a decade it's not working you want to try something new yes i would love that you have flexibility both in the way that you speak to yourself and the way you respond to it what i notice in you is that there's a way in which you kind of feel stuck like there's no choice in it. Like there's no agency that I can actually make it different. My answer to it is like, go to the extreme. Like, okay, just sit on the couch for four hours and don't do anything. And then like get through that as a way of potentially getting into being okay with boredom. And then that becomes another should, that becomes another, then it creates anxiety. Instead of saying like, oh, how do I enjoy sitting on the couch for four hours? How do I enjoy talking to myself? How do I enjoy responding to myself? I wish everybody could see the look on your face. It's wonderful. (laughs) There's that laugh. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, I kind of want to practice it more. Just the experience going into like sitting and like having the space to be like, okay, this is, this is that moment. And like maybe trying different approaches. But I think the other thing I'm feeling and hearing is also just like, how am I talking to myself all day? Yeah, that's right. And how are you responding to that? I had this experience when I was in my 20s where I decided I was going to be like ruthlessly honest with myself. And so I wrote down all the things about myself that I didn't want to admit. And then I forgot about it. Like I folded it up. I put it somewhere. I remember it had like red ink. And then I found it like six months later. And I was like, oh, and I just like checked off what had changed and then, you know, noted what hadn't changed. And the thing that I noticed is that everything that hadn't changed had become a should. And everything that had changed was just something I was aware of. Like just the awareness in itself shifted things. But as soon as I shamed myself in it, it created stagnation. As soon as I shoulded myself or you need to or you have to or that kind of thing. How do you experience boredom or open time? Joy. I love it. I don't have a ton of it, but when I have it, I enjoy the hell out of it. I have two little girls. I have a full running business right now. But there was years in my life seven years where I was just sitting in a room meditating most of the time, worrying about money sometimes and meditating or just sitting, staring at a tree. Yeah, I love it. Like I'd say the most joy that I get out of my life is from either being with my family or being by myself, doing nothing. I mentioned it, another person who's here doesn't have a job right now. Yeah, She's like, I don't know what to do all day. And I was like, oh, I felt kind of, I felt relieved that I wasn't alone in this anxiety. Really common. The shift for me, because when I first sat, you know, the first time I meditated was like, my wife was like, hey, if we're going to get married, we have to do some things. And one was a 10 day silent retreat. And that was definitely anxiety ridden. And when it became joyful is when I treated myself with love and respect. When the voice in my head learned better ways to manage me and then eventually like just reduced. You know, I think it's something like we have 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day is what I think neurologists currently think. And most of those are repetitive and critical for most humans. Yes. There's a realization, a set of realizations you can have that allow that voice to just be a lot less active. 
and then you're just hanging out in yourself and it's it's really quite enjoyable i mean as an example like right now if you just put attention in your body can you find anything that's just not pleasurable about the situation no i feel really relaxed yeah i actually feel like maybe a little bit of my shoulders yeah so even that like so you feel the shoulders don't try to fix it just go right into the center of the shoulders the discomfort going to the middle of it and yeah see what just happened even that tension is enjoyable if you hang out with it sometimes it does feel confusing i'm like be with tension don't be with tension find the respect don't find the respect. i'm like i don't and then i have to just come back to my own decisions and own feelings around it which is ideal absolutely you know like with this experience around talking about boredom and anxiety you talk about stagnation it's i guess how would you know when you've resolved the stagnation or how do you know when you've gotten friendly with the boredom or enjoyed the boredom i don't want to be the answer for anybody so i construct everything that i do through a set of experiments as you know you've done the course and so it's the whole thing is you do the experiment and you see what you get out of it and i think that's the most important thing is that the acknowledgement that the wisdom is in you it's not in me even if i knew the exact right path i wouldn't know the exact right path for you i don't have all of your experiences and i don't know what the next step is so everything i do is constantly pointing back to the person and to try to take away the pain and the confusion is to take away the lesson right it's like if you made sure that your kid was never frustrated you're pretty much making sure that your kid is not going to be able to be as completely empowered as if they learn how to wrestle with their own pain and frustration and learn the lessons from it i put pointers out there experiments things for people to investigate but i'm not sitting there saying this is the answer so that's the first part i think that's really important as far as how you know when you've resolved it there's two answers to that one is it's like saying when does an oak tree know that it's finished it's not ever it's just like it's a constant evolution the idea of an end is part of what creates the frustration you know (laughs) oh i have some place to go one day i will be there that's all part of the bullshit setup on another level there is a reality where you do just all of a sudden you're like oh that's moved and you know it you can't question it at that point so there is movement there is change and there's transformation but it's all self-referential I used to have a lot of this self-doubt around my father messing up his whole business and like, I have a business. Mine too. Mine did the same thing. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I used to always have so much fear that I'm going to do it too. Like I'm going to do all these partying or this business stuff, make all these decisions. And then one day just, I noticed it doesn't come around that thought. Exactly. So that's how you know. How did you work through your dad, the grieving and how did you experience that? Yeah. So my dad was incredibly loving for the first eight years of my life. and then slowly became more and more abusive by the time i was like 14 he was you know we were lived in this upper middle class household and he was you know yelling at me for an hour every night over dinner and if i would be like okay dad you win he'd be like see i told you you were fucking weak like it was like there was no way out of that situation the only way that i could find myself was to like work through that trauma and work through that experience as i got older there was forgiveness for him there was the recognition that his voice had become my voice in the head and was treating me the same way there was the realization that you know he did love me and that a lot of this was his own projection like a lot of the criticism that he would give me or the reactions he had towards me was really just a reaction towards himself that was being externalized and there was the recognition that really the whole thing that he was avoiding was his own critical self-talk and not being able to sit with himself and so I learned to sit with myself that was part of the process and then as he got older and i became less 
you know, I could love him as he was, I would start to make invitations about like, hey, how do you want to live together? I want to, this is how I want to be with you. And he was just never capable of doing that, unfortunately. I, you know, I would, every two years, I would like make the invitation. And the last one was kind of in the middle of COVID. And I wrote him this beautiful letter where I was like, like, I love you. I know a whole bunch of stuff about you that you maybe that you think is hidden, that you're ashamed of. I know it. And I love you. And I don't love you because of it, or I don't love you in spite of it. I love you, period. Like, you don't even need to change it. And here are these moments we've had in our lives. Because my dad was like a deeply sensitive man and a deeply loving man, but it was all hidden by this internal struggle. And I've seen through the veil with you a couple of times. Here's the experiences. And that's the experience I would love to have with you. And if you are interested, let me know. I'm here. And then he didn't talk to me for like six weeks. And I called him up. I'm like, hey, did you get that letter? And he was like, we'll just talk about it after COVID. And then he would call the family, but he wouldn't talk to me. Like he'd talk to my girls and my wife. And then they'd be like, oh, here, talk to that. He'd be like, I got to go. It was whatever I had said brought up so much discomfort in him that he just like had a hard time even facing me. This was only two, three years before the death. And then. You know, so I mourned that, I grieved that already before he passed. Like, I'm not going to get the relationship. And then his mind started to go, you know, I didn't deal with somebody who was completely gone, but I definitely dealt with somebody who was not as cognitively capable. And so then I mourned that. And then when he passed, you know, there wasn't as much mourning for me to do because I had already grieved a tremendous amount of the relationship. I'd already done the work about the trauma. I'd already done the work about not getting the relationship. But I wanted that like the level of connection wasn't available and he wasn't capable. That's how it was for me. So the actual after the death, it was all the waves of grief that one has. There was all the emotions to be felt of sadness and anger and fear and denial. And so all of that moved through me, but it was relatively quick and, and enjoyable. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. I'm deeply grateful for my dad. The way that it works in my my family was like emotions are disregarded instead of totally embraced. And so there was like no funeral. My dad was like, the body was taken away within an hour and a half, was cremated before I could see him, like all this stuff happened. And so I decided like, oh, I just called a bunch of friends and say, let's all just share stories of our fathers. And my daughter, who's 16 now, got on the phone and we were all just telling stories and everybody was crying. And I just asked people to share stories about their dad that deeply touched them. And my daughter said, you know, and I'm really grateful for grandpa because he taught you how not to raise me. He always criticized you. I always saw it, and I've never felt criticism from you. So that got me going. That got me crying. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. And I know he loved me, and I know he tried, and he did a lot of amazing things that were great for me. And I had to move a lot of anger, and I had to get through a lot of emotions to get to a place where I could authentically love him, not love him out of a sense of morality or love him because I should. How did you mourn? All of us go through boredom and have to experience it and how did you mourn for me the experience was like i shut down all my emotions because it wasn't safe in the house like that so the only emotion that i could really access was anger and i couldn't even access that without it being you know abusive or at somebody instead of expressing anger that isn't at anybody and in the podcast and the art of accomplishment we have a whole thing about emotions and so for me it was about learning to not manage them to learn to love them, to see what emotions are like if you're not trying to change them in some way. And then that creates just a lot of emotional fluidity. And then in that emotional fluidity, 
then mourning is an absolutely natural experience. It's not a question of how you do it. It's more of a question of why would you stop it? It's usually the management of the emotions that gets in the way. It's not the, yeah. the emotions. The resistance to the emotion is what causes the pain, not the emotion itself. I've been resisting being alone and like relationships. I felt a lot of fear in, and I don't think I'm resisting it. Like I'll go drink or I'll like try to distract myself versus just like letting them be. And it probably would pass. I don't know if it has to pass sooner or, or later, but I think it'd be more peaceful kind of to the original question. You're saying if the emotions were fluid. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that people don't get about emotions generally is like, if you think about emotion as like a wire or a tube with the emotion running through it, <laughs> like say you take anger and you kink that thing one way and it's like, I'm not angry. And you kink it another way and it's like, nice dress. And you kink it another way and it's like, fuck you, you son of a, you know, like all of those are kinked anger. And when you're fully loving your anger and it has freedom moving through you, then it's the anger is more like a Gandhi anger or a, it's a determination. It's a clarity. It's like Martin Luther King. It's a boundary and it's loving because we don't get angry at anything that we don't care about, that we don't have love for. So I think the thing that gets confused is that like as a kid, we get overwhelmed by these emotions and then we think the emotion is bad. And what we learn is that it's the resistance to the emotion that actually creates the pain. It's when the tube is clogged. What does the voice in your head sound like? <laughs> Mine? Yeah. It's generally pretty quiet. When it speaks, it's usually epiphany. It's like, oh, this, I could do this. There's a bit in the voice in my head that's reminding me of things to do. That's like the piece that I'm currently like noticing and it's changing in itself. But mostly it's epiphany, mostly it's positive thoughts. It's very quiet. I would say it's probably from my peak, it's probably speaks about 25% of its original 100%. So there's just not as much of it. I think there's also a natural process for a lot of people where the voice in the head becomes less verbal and becomes more kinesthetic. There was a time in my process where the voice in the head almost completely went away, but I noticed I was still having these kinesthetic, uncomfortable reactions. I had to give a voice to them and work through them. I had to like start digging it out. Something's happening here. My body tells me something's happening here. So can I give a voice to it and then interact with it in that way? But just, yeah, generally it's just quite pleasant. And occasionally, like, I'll go through something that's, like, kind of significant, and then I sort through it. What's that like? So one of the things that I'll tend to do is I'll take a, more responsibility, become a little more, a lot less than at one point, but it's still, like, I'll take a little more responsibility than is mine. I will be a little more self-reliant than is my authenticity or what is truly connected for me and for the people around me. And in that, I'll feel alone. And so that was happening in the business a couple of days back anger started showing up and I'm like, okay, I didn't want to put it out on anybody. So I said, Hey, I need a break. I took a break. I moved the anger and I had some discussion with myself, had a discussion with my wife. And then I realized what was happening was that there was a boundary that I wasn't setting, that I was taking on more work than felt comfortable for me, that I was actually trying to take on somebody else's work instead of letting them wrestle with it themselves. I was like, oh, I need to draw a boundary with this. And I thought about how to draw the boundary. And there was one boundary that I drew. And then I apologized to the guy. I said, I'm sorry for when you're stuck. I've been trying to get you unstuck. When you feel overwhelmed, I'm trying to get you out of your overwhelm. And both of those two things is very disempowering for you. It doesn't actually acknowledge the capacity that I know you have. And I apologize for disempowering you in that way. That's not how I want to be with you. And I want to acknowledge your capacity and 
trust that you will get yourself through these things and not take on the burden for you and remove the understanding that you're completely able to handle this stuff. What's it like to work with you? <laughs> a lot of fucking laughter. <laughs> we laugh a lot. A lot of the, a lot of, the signature laughs. <laughs>, yeah, I mean, laughs. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of very wrong humor. There's a lot of joy, like a lot of I love yous at the end of conversations. Like we just, in general, enjoy working with each other a ton. I'm allergic to stagnation. So if there's not movement happening in the business, you can see me get agitated and I will own that. I'll say, hey, this feels stagnant. I'd rather make 500 mistakes than be stagnant. I think the hardest thing for people to realize when they're working with me and in our organization is that it's all about quick iteration. It's all about failing quickly. And I really don't care if people make mistakes. People have made $50,000 mistakes in my business. And I'm like, okay, so how are we going to fix it? But if it's stagnation, if it's we're not making progress, I'm like, hey, this needs to change. I'm very uncomfortable if we're stagnant. And the group knows it. They're like, oh, Joe's frustrated. Where are you sensing the stagnation? They can actually help me. Oh, okay, I see that that frustration is going on. Okay, Joe, where do you see the stagnation? What's going on? What are we missing? And you know, and sometimes it'll be I'm uninformed and they'll inform me and say, oh, yeah, when actually this is what's happening. Sometimes they're like, okay, cool. Let's work on that. How do you balance the bothness of anti-stagnation, which is progress, and being or enjoyment? I can't enjoy stagnation. <laughs> so it's, there's no balance for me. There's like, stagnation is super unenjoyable for me. So, and so just to be clear, when I mean stagnation, if we're resting or we're taking a break or we're pausing, I don't have a problem with that. And non-stagnation doesn't always mean progress. It might mean that we've done 20 experiments that have failed, also totally good. Stagnation is when we're getting in our own way. That's the place where I have an issue where it's like, oh, this is a simple task. And why is this taking six people in a meeting? And like, this should be like a two week thing. And it's become a four week thing. Like what, what's going on here? That's the thing that I'm allergic to. Yeah. How do you set that up culturally? Do you have like projects for everybody to do all the time? Do you say, here's a goal and they work towards a goal? Like, how do you set that up? We make sure that there's goals, but people set them themselves. I find everybody wants to be successful. I think the idea that you have to tell people that they want to be successful, everybody doesn't always want to be accountable because they don't want to feel like a failure. So I think it's important to hold the accountability for yourself and everybody else. And it's best if you don't do that, if the team doesn't. Like, I don't want to be the holder of the accountability because people aren't accountable to me, they're accountable to the team. So the team is accountable to itself. And I just make sure that that is happening. And then people set their own goals. They're usually more ambitious than I would set them as. And the way we do it is advice culture. So it's like, if you're in charge of something, you get to make the final decision, not me. But we ask that you get advice from people it affects. So it's really important that somebody doesn't do it in their own little world and they've got caught in their own head and, okay, this is what I think the website should look like. And at the same time, I want them to have the authority and the autonomy to feel like they can do whatever the hell they need to do to get the job done. I really like the accountability to the team. Yeah. I do think a lot of people are intrinsically motivated and want to feel good about the, what they're working on. And I like, Ricardo Semler is like one of my favorite authors around that, where it's like, mm. if I tell them what to do, I've taken their power. It's tough though. Like this marketing team today, they were talking about doing this thing. I was like, I feel like that's really spammy. For me, I was like, I don't want to do it. That took their power, but I was like, I just don't think that's a lot. And so how do we agree on what our brand is so that you can make decisions without me? Yeah. So that's the way that I suggest it for people I'm coach, you know, for the, so I coach only 10, like super high level executives and 
process is first you decide on what the problem statement actually is with the people and you don't agree to a problem statement that you don't agree with so you agree on the problem statement that's an open view conversation and then the second thing is what's the criteria of solution so if we are solving the problem you're going to meet these criteria and then you back away Mm. to me that's the important piece so like with the branding thing it's like do we agree on the problem yeah so the problem is that we need to do this marketing it needs to be in alignment with the brand okay so what are the criteria the criteria is that it has to cost x amount that it needs to be executed in x amount of time it needs to have alignment with the brand it needs to be super exciting for you guys to work on and okay now go solve it if you have the agreement on the first two, then you can give complete autonomy on the third. How can people improve their self-respect? Because what we're talking about today, when we talk about negative self-talk, it's like, well, I'm not respecting myself to treat myself in a way that, I don't know, it's something I'm trying to work on where like, because I don't do boundaries or because I behave in ways that I don't like, it does take away my self-worth and my self-respect. And yeah, even being okay with the boredom, like, dude, how cool is it? You could be bored. Yeah, exactly. But I'm like, oh, I'm anxious. And this is, I can't be alone. And how are you going to be in a relationship if you can't be alone? It spirals into the negative self-talk. So I'm curious ways that we can practice that. Is it just observing the voice, playing with the voices, playing with the responses? How do you respect yourself is the same way that you respect anyone else. Speak to yourself in a respectful way, respond in a respectful way. And that requires calling attention to it, seeing it. Um, if you've done the connection courses you have, then you know the there's that negative voice in the head experiment that we do which is all about bringing awareness to it that requires first awareness and then it requires experimentation like how do you want to be with yourself and not how should i be with myself but how do i want to be with myself and to do those experiments and see what's most effective but there's another kind of a shortcut if you will which is how do you love yourself again you love yourself the same way you love anyone else you literally like give yourself the unconditional love that you've always wanted from say your parents or from your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatnot. And that's literally a visceral experience of self-love. And that's one of the most effective change agents that there is on the personal growth realm. And yet it often takes time for people to get there. But once they get there, transformation happens really quickly. It doesn't need to take any time. It's just literally like a 404 it gives them a system error i mean and we obviously we have like 20 or 30 techniques or experiments that people can run to learn this stuff and everybody is different it depends on how they disrespect themselves and how they talk to themselves and lots of nuances it made me wonder what what makes so many of us and i'll speak for myself but what makes myself be so critical and be you're bored you're alone you're single I wonder where that's serving us. I like the idea of like, how do I want to be loved? How do I want to be respected? And then just treating myself in that manner. I guess I was just also kind of curious. And like, what makes us have that to be even begin with? Neurologically speaking, it's a way to keep tribes together. So what happens is a, you have four basic brain waves. You have alpha, beta, theta, and delta. So there's like the working, like where you're doing tasks. There's the flow state of alpha. There's the two sleep states of delta. And then there's Theta, which is that place between dream and awake. It's the same space you give to somebody when you're hypnotizing them. The state that kids are in from zero to eight years old, basically. And so it's when they believe in fairies and Santa Claus and like they're in that theta space. And we get basically programmed. This is how you treat yourself by the way your parents treated you. And so whether you see it as attachment 
theory or you can see it through the eyes of Freud or whatever. We basically learn how to treat ourselves by the way that we were treated in those first years. That's to keep us in the family. That's to keep us in the society. And so if you're trying to change that, that's where it feels like it's a struggle for people. Whereas if you're not changing that, if it's like, if you were taught that like, oh, money's always there, it's always easy. It's a pretty easy transition to make money in your life. But if you get taught that money's never there and that this is the relationship to money is like a struggle, then that's where you're going to naturally pop out. And then there's work to be done to figure out the new relationship you want to have with money or with yourself or whatever it is. So that's how it works. Neurologically speaking, that's how it works. I was thinking about how my mom is very critical of herself like yes. all day long. Yes. I'm too fat. I'm like, mom, you, you go to the gym five days a week. Right. That's how it was raised. It's, and she did a great job raising that. Yeah. It was very attentive, all these things. But in terms of how she talks to herself is what how I've learned to kind of really recognize it in that way. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. It's either the way they talk to you or you saw how they spoke to themselves and you mimicked. If someone wanted to learn themselves better, be more awakened, improve their self-respect or self is there any books? There's obviously the Connection Course. There's the Order of Accomplishment podcast. I'm going to tell everyone to check out. Is it a Vipassana for 10 days? What other resources or recommendations? If I wrote down all the ways that I look to discover myself, there's like pages of it. So there's so many tools that are awesome out there. To me, I think that you really have to trust your own guide in that. But I will give to like a certain pointer, which is if you are really head oriented, find some work that's more emotional. If you're really emotional, find some work that's more head. If you are neglectful of your body, find the somatic work that helps you in understanding your body. There's three brains that we have. We have the prefrontal cortex, which is the human brain. It's what allows us to have thought. There's the emotional brain, which is the mammalian brain. It's what makes our decisions for us. It's not logic. And then there's the nervous system or the reptilian brain. In your transformation process, the balance of those three things is really important. So as an example, I know that I don't want to be doing this or I know that this is the right way to behave, but I'm not behaving that way, right? Everybody has that experience. And it, what that means is that like your prefrontal cortex has gotten it, but your body hasn't gotten it yet. And so that's why it's really important to think about those three brains and balance out your transformation through that. For the work that we do, the reason that it's been so effective and the studies that we've done on it, well, not we, but we had like somebody from Harvard and somebody from Columbia study our stuff. And the reason I think that we're so effective, my theory is, is that we work on all three of those things. So we don't neglect one of them for the others. And I think that it's the same thing as, as you're doing stuff. If you find somatic work, if you're in your head or find stuff that really allows you to deconstruct your mental models, if you're more emotional, deconstruct your beliefs. Nice. I was curious, what's influenced you the most, like from books? Or I know there's a gentleman that you saw. Yeah, there was Case. I mean, I've had a lot of mentors. I think the biggest work that I've done is meditation has been huge. Non-dual teachers has been huge for me. Really great therapy. Non-dual teachers? Non-duality teachers who teach non-duality. So the most famous in our world now is like maybe Eckhart Tolle. But these are people, uh, Ramana Maharishi, Adi Ashante. There's a lot of them out there. I think I studied like at least 30 or 40 of them in my time doing that stuff. But that was a huge effect. That had a huge impact on me. The somatic work, core energetics, that kind of work has been really important to me. Parenting, 
like one of the biggest teachers being married has been one of the biggest teachers hand in hand parenting. I can't recommend highly enough. I think it's one of the most profound spiritual practices that I've ever done. It's a great book. The book is called Listen by Patty Whiffler. That's a great book. All right. Yeah. Joe Hudson, love you. <laughs> that is a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did making it for you. Go to Joe's podcast and his court art of accomplishment.com. It's powerful. If you want to really change your life or start reflecting a lot deeper and also have a lot more inner peace, which Joe has been really able to help me do through chatting and listening to his show, artofaccomplishment.com. Definitely check out his connection course. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go have hard conversations with each other. And before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Noah Kagan. I love hearing what you think about this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. I know you're already subscribed to it, so I'm even sweating it. And join my newsletter, sendfox.com slash Noah. So I can send you our exclusive weekly email where we have a lot of amazing stuff. Plus, create your own newsletter for free. Build your own tribe of amazing, gorgeous people at sendfox.com. Finally, shout outs to my amazing team. Special thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com. He has been doing these episodes for years. I love you, man. I hope I get to see you this summer, if not next year. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki and Jen from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, a shout out to everyone at AppSumo who has been part of our product team on the engineering, design, project management, uh, customer management. You guys are phenomenal. Y'all are phenomenal. Uh, I love seeing what we're putting out on AppSumo.com and all the things coming out to make our partners and customers' lives better. Have a grateful day. What's your favorite memory with your dad? Good question. No way George came up with that. He's probably like, Noah, why did your dad hate you?